I want you to open the door for me. Only silence. Look through the peephole, I said. I'm not a cop. I'm an assistant district attorney. I stepped back and squared off so the woman inside the basement apartment could check me out. The hallway and staircase had been cleared of men in uniform, including the detail from emergency services, poised to knock down her door with a battering ram, which was there when I arrived at the scene a short while ago, at one o'clock in the morning. I didn't hear any sound from within, no sense of her movement. My name is Alexandra Cooper. You're Tina, aren't you? Tina Barr. I didn't say what my specialty was, that I was in charge of the DA's office, Sex Crimes Prosecution Unit. The police weren't certain she'd been assaulted by the man who had earlier invaded her home, but several of them thought she might reveal those details to me if I could gain her confidence. I moved in against the metal-clad door and pressed my ear to it, but heard nothing. Don't lose your touch now, Coop. Mike Chapman walked down the steps and handed a light bulb to the rookie who was holding a flashlight over my shoulder. The money on the street's against you, but I'm counting on your golden tongue to talk the lady out so those guys can go home and catch some sleep. The young cop passed the bulb to Mercer Wallace, the six-foot-six-inch-tall detective from the Special Victims Unit, who had called me to the brownstone on the quiet block between Lexington and Third Avenues in the East 90s. Mercer reached overhead and screwed it in, illuminating the drab, cracked paint on the ceiling and walls of the hallway. Somebody, most likely the perp, shattered the other one. There are slivers of glass everywhere. Thanks, kid, Mike said, dismissing the rookie. No progress here, Detective Wallace? We haven't got a homicide, I whispered to Mercer. And they sell light bulbs at the bodega on Lex. I don't know why you think we needed Mike, but please get him off my back. Damn, I've listened to Blondie charm full-on perverts into boarding the bus for a 25-to-life timeshare at Sing Sing. I've seen her coax confessions from the lying lips of the deranged and demented. I've watched as weak-willed men. Mercer put his finger to his lips and pointed at the staircase. Tina, these two detectives are my friends. I've worked with them for more than 10 years. I paused to cough and clear my throat. There was still a bit of smoke wafting through the hallway. Can you tell me why you don't want to open up? Why it is you won't trust us? We're worried about your safety, Tina, about your physical condition. Mercer pulled at my elbow. Let's go up for a break, get some fresh air. I stayed at the door for another few minutes and then followed Mike and Mercer to the small vestibule of the building and out onto the stoop. It was a mild October night and neighbors returning to their homes, walking dogs or hanging around the hood were checking on the police activity and trying to figure out what was wrong. The uniformed sergeant from the 23rd precinct whose team had been the first responders, was on the sidewalk in front of the building, talking to Billy Schultz, the man who had called 911 an hour earlier. What's the situation behind the house? Mike asked Mercer as I caught up with them on their way down the front steps. Two cops stationed there, small common garden for the tenants, back doors from both the first floor and bar's basement apartment, but no one has moved since they've been on site. What do you know about the girl? Not much, nobody seems to, Mercer said. He turned to the man standing with the sergeant, whom I guessed to be about 40, several years older than Mike and I. This is Mike Chapman, Billy. He's assigned to Night Watch. Mike worked in Manhattan North Homicide, which helped staff the Night Watch unit, an elite squad of detectives on call between midnight and 8 a.m. 
when precinct squads were most understaffed, to respond all over Manhattan to murders and situations like this one that the department referred to with gross understatement as unusuals. Billy lives on the first floor, Mercer said. He's the guy who called 911. Good to meet you, Mike said. He turned to me. What's her name? Tina Barr. She your friend, he said to Billy. We chat at the mailboxes occasionally. She's a quiet girl, keeps to herself. Spent a lot of time gardening on weekends in the summer, so I ran into her out back every now and then. But I haven't seen her much since. Lived here long? Me? 18 years. Her? Tina Sublets, a year, maybe more. Mike ran his fingers through his thick black hair, looking from Billy to me. You sure she's in there? I could hear a woman crying when I first got here, I said. Whimpering was a more accurate word. Tina was sobbing when I knocked on her door, Billy said. But she wouldn't open up for you. No, sir. Why were you knocking? What made you call 911? I'm a graphic designer, detective. Worked late, stopped off for a burger and a couple of beers on my way home, Billy said. It was about 12.30 when I got near the building. That's when I saw this guy come tearing out the front door down the steps. What guy, someone you know? Billy Schultz shook his head. Nope, the fireman. Mike looked to Mercer. Nobody told me about that. The fire department got here first? Not for real, Mercer said. I mean, I assumed he was a fireman, Billy continued. He was dressed in all the gear, coat, boots, hat, even had a protective mask of some kind on. That's why I couldn't see his face. Did you stop him? Did he talk to you? He flew by me like there was a forest fire on Lexington Avenue he had to get to. Almost took me out. Even that didn't seem odd until I looked up the street for his truck, but there wasn't one around. Just weird.